Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming out on such a cold day. You get extra credit uh, for being here at Cato. We'll make sure it goes on, on your record. Uh, and welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium here at Cato. My name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, here at Cato. We're now in our second decade uh, of the Trade Center. Our mission is to help educate the public and policymakers on the benefits of free trade and the costs of protectionism. Our topic today is a government program that's going to expire on December 31st if Congress doesn't act, not the Bush tax cuts, uh, the generalized system of preferences. Uh, the GSP program, in a nutshell, offers lower tariff rates on goods imported from poor and middle-income uh, countries. And this is generally a good thing. Uh, like most other rich countries, the United States imposes uh, its highest trade barriers on those products that are of special export interest uh, to, to those very poor and medium-sized uh, countries, and by the way, uh, disproportionately affect uh, poor families here in the United States. We're talking about apparel, footwear, toys, sporting goods, and agricultural products, among other items. And, and by the way, one of our panelists, uh, Ed Gresser, has written uh, very effectively about the impact of U.S. tariffs on the poor. Uh, the generalized system of preferences is a good faith effort uh, by the U.S. government to offset some of the anti-poor bias of the U.S. tariff code. The aim of GSP is to promote uh, bottom-up, private sector, export-led growth uh, in uh, developing countries and to help reduce poverty around the world. These are all uh, worthy goals. It also has the beneficial, if underappreciated, effect of lowering prices for U.S. consumers. It's not talked about generally when the program uh, is, uh, is debated, uh, but this is a key point that we emphasize over and over again at the Center for Trade Policy Studies. Sometimes I think we're the lone voice in Washington talking about consumer interests uh, in the trade debate. Under current law, the U.S. government provides preferential import access to imports from 131 uh, other countries and territories. The preferences extend to about a third of the 10,000 tariff lines uh, in the U.S. Uh, harmonized tariff schedule. In practice, that means about $20 billion worth of imports comes into the United States each year under the generalized system of preferences. That sounds like a lot. That is uh, a lot of money to those of us at least outside of government. Uh, but it actually amounts to less than 2% of total U.S. imports. And according to my calculations, about three quarters of the GSP imports are from the top six countries, the top six beneficiaries. And we also happen to have a, a, a representative of one of those countries here today. Uh, and that country is, is Thailand. And that's Dr. Uh, Chikara Kamalsiri, and we'll be hearing uh, from him uh, in a little bit, too. Now, at first glance, the generalized system of preferences should be a slam dunk for those of us who support uh, free trade. Lower tariffs and lower tariffs, especially for goods uh, most important uh, to, to But as my Cato colleague Sally James uh, examines in her new paper, the U.S. generalized system of preferences, helping the poor but at what price? Uh, 
she finds that the program is a mixed blessing and that it needs some significant reforms. Uh, Sally will speak first today, uh, followed by our two other uh, speakers. I'll introduce each one of them uh, in turn. Sally James has been a great addition to the Trade Center staff uh, since she joined us in 2006 as a trade policy analyst. Her studies for Cato have ranged from uh, agricultural uh, trade and the Farm Bill to services trade to trade adjustment assistance to internet gambling. Uh, she's a good all-around uh, contributor to our efforts, and as you'll uh, delightfully discover in a moment, she's not from, from central Iowa. Uh, Sally uh, is originally from that other English-speaking continental-sized country, Australia. In her career down under, Sally was an executive officer in the Office of Trade Negotiations in the Australian government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, DFAT. Uh, where she focused on industrial market access negotiations. Before then, she was a senior uh, policy advisor in the Australian government's Department of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Forestry. In her time at Cato, her articles have been published widely in major U.S. newspapers. Uh, she's a, uh, appeared many times on the BBC World, CNBC, CNN, Fox News, Bloomberg, NPR. You might have seen her just the other day squaring a golf squaring off against, who was he, the head of the uh, Wheat Growers Association, and you cleaned his clock. Well done. <laughs> uh, Sally received her Bachelor of Economics and Master of Economics degrees from the University of Adelaide and her PhD in Agricultural Economics from the University of Western Australia. Please join me in welcoming Sally James. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for that introduction, and thank you uh, to my co-panelists for joining us today. I'm really delighted and honoured to share a stage with Ed Gress. Uh, he's a brilliant trade analyst, and I, I admire his work so much. And of course, very grateful to have Chikaran here with us as well. Uh, I think he's going to bring a really valuable practitioner's and beneficiary's perspective on, on the issues we're discussing today. From the outset, let me just say that in some senses, I found it difficult to write, write this paper because I do feel somewhat conflicted about, about the GSP program. On the one hand, uh, as I'll outline surely, as Dan touched upon, it does bring, of course, real benefits to people. American consumers and firms pay lower prices than they otherwise would if the program did not exist. And some, some poor people abroad gain from exporting more than what they would if the program was not in place. On the other hand, the program does represent managed trade, and I would be a bad Cato analyst if I did not highlight that and say this program requires regular permission from Congress and complicated rules of bureaucracy to manage it. So while the GSP may be preferable to an alternative situation where the general most favoured nation tariffs apply everywhere and always, it is vastly inferior to a situation where trade flows freely across uh, borders. And that's the ideal to which we should continue to strive in other words, saying that the GSP is better than the MFN situation is not sufficient as an ultimate policy goal. We should set our sights higher and continue to strive for the ultimate goal of global free trade. The relevant question in that context then becomes, is the GSP moving us towards that goal? And here I think the evidence is, is somewhat mixed. Uh, the benefits are not trivial. In 2009, the GSP provided duty-free access, as Dan said, for over $20 billion worth of goods. As we can see from this chart, assuming, yes, I can work it, 
Um, I'm not sure if that really shows up. Can we dim the lights if anyone's... Oh, that's scary, isn't it? Someone's big brother. So at first, this, this uh, we've got total US imports is the blue line and imports under the GSP is the pink line. And at first glance, it looks like, well, to the extent imports under GSP are increasing, it's just part of a general... Uh, you know, trend of, of increasing imports. But if you look more closely, and I should say this graph is adapted from uh, the, the groups, the people at the Coalition for GSP. I've adapted it to add the total imports so we can compare it with trend. And what it shows is that up until about 2000, GSP imports were actually decreasing. The pink line was, was going down while imports were increasing. So in other words, the trend wasn't necessarily true over that period. The vertical lines represent where GSP was extended. And what I want to draw your attention to in this graph is that in 2000, around 2002, when GSP was extended for a five-year period, we saw imports from GSP, under GSP, increase quite dramatically, and in fact, more so than total imports increase. In other words, there was a disproportionate increase in imports from GSP countries once that program was extended for a good period of time. And I think what that shows uh, basically is that the GSP, when exporters can have some certainty about the program, that those exporters make use of it. So we've kind of got a revealed preference thing. Um, this benefits poor exporters abroad, of course, which is the whole point of the program, at least as it's intended, and that is to open the US market beyond what the MFN rates would allow. But also important, as Dan said, again, I'd be a bad policy analyst, or Cato analyst at least, if I didn't say what's important are the benefits to American consumers and firms from duty-free imports. They saved Americans over $580 million in 2009. More than three-quarters of that, according to the Chamber of Commerce, is raw materials, components, other, other things that help keep American firms competitive. Again, this is largely trade diversion in the sense that those savings uh, and billions more uh, could flow from unilateral trade liberalisation, of course, but compared to the status quo, this, this is a gain for Americans. Another argument in favour for the GSP is that it holds a carrot out in, uh, to potential exporters to protect human rights in their own country, US intellectual property rights. In that sense, it's used somewhat as a, as a political tool. The debate over whether that's worthy or useful is, is for another forum, but, but that is a benefit that is put forward. Having briefly covered the benefits of the GSP, let's turn to some of its limitations and, well, quite frankly, costs. First of all, the limitations. It's, it's not a big source of imports. This, this program is, uh, uh, at least by the numbers, not a big deal. This chart shows that GSP imports are less than 1.5% of total US uh, imports. That's the um, last column there. You know, again, $20 billion, as we've been saying, came in under GSP, but that's 1.3%, according to this, of, of total imports. So we have to think you know, keep, keep in mind the size of this program relative. And we can see that actually, uh, you know, far, far higher share of imports comes in under other FTAs um, and even some preference programs, AGOA, for example. So even GSP beneficiary countries don't use the GSP as often as they could. In other words, only about 8.5% of imports from GSP-eligible countries use the program. 
the rest enter under MFN rates, which might be zero, or under other programs such as AGOA. I'll go into a, a bit uh, why that is, and, and that's mainly because the way the program is designed. Uh, there are product exclusions which, when you read it, appear very cynical. Uh, whole classes of products, mainly textiles, are excluded. Also glass, home linens, watches, handbags, tableware. Um, all of these, uh, of course, are especially important for developing countries, at least labour-intensive, uh, sorry, labour-abundant in uh, developing countries. There's also other factors about the program that, that limit its uh, benefits. There are things called competitive need limits, and uh, that means basically that certain products are not eligible if they come from countries that are deemed competitive in those products. Argentina, for, uh, beef from Argentina is a good example. Uh, if a country is deemed to be sufficiently competitive across a range of products, the president has the authority and the discretion to graduate the entire country out of eligibility, even if they otherwise would, would meet the low income criteria. Think about the incentives uh, that creates at the margin. If you get really good, you lose access or at least preferential access to the American market. There are such things called uh, competitive need limit waivers that I won't go into here, but that they're in the uh, paper. So sometimes those limits aren't binding, but binding, excuse me. But again, they, they need special petition, uh, and and they can get countries in a trap. I'm not sure if Chakaran is planning to mention this in his remarks, but when the uh, 421 tariffs, uh, American 421 tariffs on Chinese tyres came into effect, a ruling that's just uh, been been vindicated by the WTO, by the way, uh, the uh, the tyre tyre, sorry. Tires from Thailand, uh, uh, the imports of those increased to an extent that this competitive need limit was breached and they lost GSP access as a result. So in other words, a, you know, quite frankly, protectionist policy put in, in place by, by the administration then led to Thailand getting caught in, a, in, in this trap, breaching the CNL, and all of a sudden now they face MFN tire, uh, rates for their tires. Other uh, limitations? Well, the administrative burdens limit uh, the benefits. For example, complex rules of origin, other paperwork requirements. That's why, especially when the MFN or general rate is low, eligible products sometimes enter as general imports. The compliance costs are just prohibitive, which is why there might actually be imports coming in as MFN or under other programs that the exporter just kind of can't be... It's not worth their time to go through what they would need to to, to bring this product in under the program. Uh, the other problem is that these programs are, are temporary. They're somewhat arbitrary in the sense that a lot of discretion is built in the program. And so when, when it's renewed for, say, you know, nine months at a time, that's not a lot of lead time for exporters to really get with the program, if you'll excuse the pun... Well, what about the cost? That's the limitations of the program as it's administered, administered and designed. But what about the uh, are there outright costs from this program? Well, first, without labouring the point, these programs are discriminatory. That's the point. Uh, they divert trade, just like other preferential trade deals, and the costs of trade diversion from other perhaps more efficient or, or, or poorer exporters should be kept in mind. Um, the bureaucracy costs. Every new program needs a new bureaucracy in the granting and grantee country to administer the program, conduct annual reviews. 
you know, and for the private sector, the benefits will flow only export if exporters and importers fulfil the necessary administrative obligations, and that costs time and resources. I think I want a, a bit, bit more nuanced here about some of the costs, and, and I would say that they mislead some countries about the gains from trade, which we know come from access to cheaper and a wider variety of goods through increased imports and through efficiency gains. And the emphasis on exports encourages mercantilist thinking on, on the part of uh, poorer countries. That, that's a real cause for concern in my mind because it diverts attention from the many important sources of distortions in world markets. Uh, to be sure, rich countries do enormous harm to the world trading system through agricultural subsidies and tariffs, for example, and tariff schedules that are biased against poor country exports, like the United States tariff schedule is. But poor country tariffs are higher on, uh, on, on tropical products, which are important for poor countries than rich country tariffs are. Let me just, I'll show you a chart. So this shows, as I said, tropical products it broadly are, are important to developing countries. And this shows in the, uh, the first column of numbers, the um, kind of average, uh, it's ad valorem equivalent where necessary tariff in developed countries on these products compared to in developing countries. And what we can see here is that in every product except beet sugar, developing countries have higher tariffs on these goods than developed countries do. That is, and the World Bank has done some excellent work on this, that is the source of a lot of the distortions in the world market and therefore cutting developing country tariffs is the source of a lot of gains from trade liberalisation. And I think taking the focus off of that is, is probably somewhat misleading um, it also seems to perpetuate the myth that poor countries will develop only if rich countries give them preferences. And again, while it's quite clear to me that rich countries need to get their feet off the poor countries' necks, many obstacles to development are within the power of poor countries themselves. There, is, there are limits to what these programs can do as far as development. Corruption, lack of property rights uh, are two areas, for example, that, that these preferences can't necessarily address and yet are so hugely important. They somewhat encourage dependency on preferred products and markets. For example, during the uh, ongoing dispute between the European Union and uh, Latin American countries over bananas, a lot of the uh, former colonies in the Africa and, and Caribbean Pacific nations, EU, I mean, European former colonies, argued that, that lowering tariffs will hurt us and we, all we do is grow bananas and sugar and, you know, to, to what extent is it encouraging uh, countries to be dependent on these, on these programs and, and a more incentive, uh, sorry, more, more to the point, a disincentive to, to innovation. There's some evidence to suggest uh, in another cost of these programs that the existence of preferences may impede progress on trade liberalisation. On the unilateral track, uh, research suggests preference recipients have less liberal trade regimes than non-beneficiaries. Multilateral preference erosion uh, is, a, is a problem uh, in the sense that preference recipients don't like multilateral uh, trade liberalisation because the general rate goes down. That margin of preference will be eroded. Uh, this happened just the other day in the, in the WTO's uh, Council on Goods 
the EU wanted to provide preferential access to its market for textiles from Pakistan in the wake of the devastating floods and other developing countries blo blocked that. They didn't want them giving that preference. Um, you know, the US textile lobby uh, fights this too. And there's, a, you know, this, this happens quite a lot in a kind of a perverse and very sad South versus South tussle. So in conclusion, uh, while the GSP program is a, a valuable program in many ways, it really is limited by the bugs in the design. And I think policymakers really should concentrate on broadening this to include more products, more inclusive eligibility standards, removing the competitive need limits. I, I think it's embarrassing and quite frankly shameful that the US does not offer 100% duty-free quota-free access to goods from least developed countries. They should do that immediately, and they could also offer on an MFN basis duty-free access on goods of special interest to poor countries and low-income American consumers. Uh, other things they could do, getting rid of farm subsidies is a no-brainer. But these are all, in the meantime, recommendations. Ultimately, as I, as I opened with, we should recognise that this program is really a second-best solution, second-best at best. The improvements to the program I've mentioned today should be taken only as recommendation for improvement and not, not the ultimate end goal. I think these programs do, despite their benefits, put sand in the gears of international trade. And I think we need to think seriously about whether, whether they are worth some of, some of the costs. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Sally. And I know we have plenty of copies of the study, so encourage you to take, take one home. Our next speaker is Ed Gresser. Uh, Ed is no stranger to our podium over here at Cato. Ed is president of the Democratic Leadership Council here in Washington and director of the Council's Project on Trade and Global Markets. Before joining the DLC, Ed spent eight years directing the trade program at the Progressive Policy Institute. During his time at PPI and now at DLC, Ed has produced a series of major very valuable studies on economic relations between the West and the Muslim world, East Asian integration and American trade relations with China. And I think this is where Ed's really carved out a signature niche, uh, the, the US tariff system and its effects on low-income American shoppers and development prospects in poor countries. Ed is also the author of a very fine uh, 2007 book, uh, Freedom from Want, American Liberalism, and the global economy. And Ed has spent some valuable time uh, in, in the belly of the beast as an insider uh, here, in, here in Washington. He served as legislative assistant and then policy director for Senator Max Baucus, a Democrat of Montana, between 1993 and 1998, and as a principal policy advisor, speechwriter, and research aide uh, to Charlene Barshevsky when she was the US trade representative uh, in Bill Clinton's uh, second term. Ed graduated from Stanford University with distinction in political science in 1984, and he holds a master's degree from Columbia University. Please join me in welcoming Ed Gresser. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Sally, for this paper. Um, when I was in the government and I was reading think tank material and critiques of what we were doing, the typical article, I often found quite annoying, which uh, it would be something along the lines of the, the bumbling Clinton team is screwing up yet again. And if I were in charge, 
this would all be going well. And I, at that time, before I went into the think tank world, I told myself I would not write that sort of article because it is easy to say from the outside, I would do it better than them. And the record is that the competence of most administration, at least in tr most administrations, at least in trade, is about the same. People are, you know, flawed. They do their best. They screw things up sometimes. They get things right sometimes. The quality of implementation, I don't think, gets much better or worse from one administration to the next. Cato Institute does not write that sort of paper. At least I've never seen one out of the Cato Institute. Usually, um, when I read Cato material, it is principled. It looks at the operation of systems and whether they're good or not. If they're not good, how could they be changed to be better? One can agree with them, as I often do, or sometimes I don't. But I always feel Cato Institute does not fall to prey to that temptation of saying, if only we were in charge, everything would be better. Um, what they do is they, they may think that way. And you know, <laughs> privately, sometimes I may think that way myself. But um, what a think tank can do that is really valuable is add information to the debate, not simply say um, the people in charge are the bumblers and losers. And this paper is a really a classic example of that. It is a in-depth, you know, highly factual, you know, theoretically informed look at the GSP system, which is a an important part of our trade relationships with poor countries. I uh, commend it to you. I hope uh, many people will read it because I think it really is a good piece of research and raises a set of important questions about trade preferences in general and GSP in particular and um, implicitly also about FTAs. So very good job by Sally. I hope you all read it. Um, my own thoughts, a couple of things. As a general principle, I feel that policies and tariffs being one of them should try to treat the poor more gently than they treat the middle class and the wealthy. Our trade system does not do that. And the, that is principally because of our tariff policy. Tariff system we inherit from the Hoover administration. It's been changed substantially over the years, but still you know, very recognizably looks like the one that was put together in 1930, which, has, which had then its highest rates on cheap and simple um, labor-intensive manufactured goods and still does. We import last year a little bit less than $2 trillion worth of goods. On that, we assess a tariff penalty of about $20 billion. If you look closely at it, uh, about 60% of our tariff money comes from a relatively small slice of imports. About 5% of imports raise about 60% of all the money. Um, this year, I have the figures is a bit larger, $26 billion. Of that $26 billion, $9.5 billion will come from clothes, $2 billion will come from shoes, $1 billion will come from luggage, $1 billion will come from home linens like towels and bed sheets and pillowcases, and then $12 billion from everything else. Uh, the $12 billion is assessed on about $1.9 trillion of goods. The $14 billion is assessed on about $100 billion of imports. In practice, this means two things. One, that our tariff system is a fairly small part of the overall tax system. It's about the same size as the estate tax. Estate tax is assessed on wealthy families. Tariff system is mainly assessed on poor families, especially poor families with children. 
because most of its money comes from clothes, and secondarily shoes and linens and luggage. Uh, those are big parts of a poor family's budget. They are small parts of a rich family's budget, and they don't appear in the business purchase budget very much. Moreover, these, um, the way this works is that the tariff system is systematically skewed to tax heavily things that poor people buy and not to tax luxuries that rich people buy. Uh, my shirt is um, Thailand-made. It's a 16% tariff because of cotton. If it were silk, it would be 1%. If it were polyester, it would be 32%. Um, a pair of shoes I'm wearing, you know, nice event, I'm wearing, you know, attractive leather shoes, those are 8.5% tariff. Um, expensive pair of Nike sneakers, 20%. Cheap pair of sneakers, 48%. Um, brassiere, not wearing one. Um, <laughs> A silk brassiere is 1.9% tariff. Polyester is 16.9%. Um, spoon, you know, if I had one of those, it was sterling silver, 4%. If it is cheap stainless steel, it's 15.8%. So the sort of hidden away in these 11,000 lines of tariff codes as an extremely regressive tax system that taxes life necessities more heavily than anything else and taxes cheap things that poor people buy much more heavily than luxuries that rich people buy. Likewise, this has an effect on our um, trading partners. The um, classical, the case of Pakistan is an interesting one. Pakistan makes bed sheets and towels, makes um, clothes and so forth. Pakistan exports $3.5 billion to the US. Tariff penalty is about $350 million. Britain, former colonial power, uh, exports medicine and whiskey and artwork and airplane parts and so forth. $47 billion of goods, tariff penalty $280 million. So we have a very kind of unfair and inequitable pattern where a small amount of poor country goods gets a much heavier penalty than a large amount of rich country goods. GSP is an attempt to um, encourage imports from poor countries, to even out some of these tariff disparities. It is not a very ambitious uh, effort to do that because it does not include, as Sally mentioned, um, most of the goods that actually carry high tariffs. But in its, within its limitations, I think it's been a very successful program. Um, Sally showed a chart that showed GSP imports drifting down in some cases. That's often because uh, big GSP exporters like Mexico move into FTA status and stop, uh, start selling under NAFTA and stop selling under um, the GSP. Also because some of the GSP goods, um, like uh, computers and telephones, uh, scrap, you know, tariffs abolished altogether. So on those goods that are like things that Thailand exports in bulk, um, jewelry, um, insulation wiring. GSP beneficiaries have been pretty good at holding their market share and I think are using the program quite well. The program has some definite flaws. Uh, it's not a very generous program because it excludes so many high tariff goods. This has the effect of making it a program of relatively little value for genuinely poor countries. Um, Thailand, Brazil, Indonesia, um, those sorts of countries at the lower middle to upper middle level income do very well under GSP. 
countries at very low levels, um, Thailand's neighbor, Cambodia and Laos, uh, Nepal, Pakistan itself, get very little benefit out of it because most of their products are excluded. Um, Pakistan, you know, I think about 5% of its trade or 3% gets GSP benefits. Those are things like nail clippers and carpets, but not things that are really in bulk and, uh, and employ a lot of Pakistanis. Um, it is a hyper-conditionalized program. I think there are 25 different conditionalities in it. So enforcement of the conditions is somewhat arbitrary. It's hard for any country ever to be completely free of you know, problem areas. And it's hard for the US government to decide when to enforce any particular um, condition. Diversionary effects, um, probably there, but I, I don't think I'm as concerned about that as Sally might be. Um, the countries that would suffer from trade diversion from GSP would be the countries that aren't in it. Um, those would be China and Vietnam, to a lesser extent, European Union rich countries. I think if we divert a bit of jewelry trade from China to Thailand, it's not a bad thing. Um, diversionary effects, I think, are more serious in the FTA program. There you can really, I would think, see towel trade shifting away from Pakistan and toward Mexico or South Africa. Those are things we don't do a good job tracking and we should do much better. They're also there in the regional preference programs, like the African Growth and Opportunity Act. There is a potential, I think it is true, for GSP beneficiaries to become overly protective of the preference margin and then become unhappy about Doha Round or unilateral liberalization. That seems to me also a potential danger of the FTA program and has been very evident in the African program, where the African countries have been banding together to strongly oppose any help for Cambodia and Bangladesh. Uh, it is quite unfortunate. Um, of all these non-MFN programs, the GSP seems to me to be the one that is working best, that the beneficiaries are most uh, effectively keeping their market share. It has helped Thailand make a, an important transition from being a major foreign aid beneficiary to a trade preference and export-led um, export uh, beneficiary. And you can see the same thing in a lot of middle-income countries around the world. So. I think Sally's paper points up some real problems with the concept of non-MFN policies. I do think these are at their least damaging in the GSP system and at, and at their most uh, troublesome in the FTAs and other preferences. I wish it were a more generous program. Um, it is odd to say, for me to look at our trade patterns with Pakistan and Britain and say, you know, how can we consider this a fair or reasonable system? I think um, Sally's point about the lack of value of many of our tariffs is very well taken. If you look at the highest tariffs, that's the 48% tariff on cheap sneakers, haven't been made here since the 1970s. We've got a billion dollars in taxes on luggage. Um, there's about 7,000 luggage workers here. 14,000 shoe workers, you know, it's, it's, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of tariffs per job, and the jobs are usually in luxury goods or very sophisticated products that are meant for very specialized markets. So it is long past time, I think, that we took a look at our tariff system and asked what, what is its purpose? Why do we want to have it? If we want to keep it, what is the 
long-term goal that we're trying to achieve through it. And I think the paper does a really good job of pointing those questions up. Uh, there are some points for debating it in some areas where I have different emphasis, but I think it is a really uh, significant and important and very interesting to read contribution to our debate. And I congratulate Sally for producing it and the Cato for publishing it. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much, Ed. Our next speaker is Jakaran Kamal-Siri, the Minister-Counselor of the Commercial Section at the Royal Thai Embassy here in Washington. Before joining the embassy two years ago, he served in the Thai Department of Foreign Trade in the Ministry of Commerce, uh, first as head of division of the Bureau of Trade Measures and then as head of division in the Bureau of Trade in Goods Administration. From 2000 to 2005, he was commercial counselor for the Thai mission to the European Union and the Royal Thai Embassy in Brussels, Belgium. Dr. Kamal Siri pursued his higher education here in the United States all the way through, uh, earning his Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts degree from Illinois State University and his PhD in World Comparative Politics from the State University of New York in Binghampton. Please join me in welcoming Jakaran Kamal Siri. It's a sad day when I'm the tech support. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Chris, for, for that kind introduction. Um, first, I would like to express my appreciation to Sally James and the Cato Institute for its kind invitation extended to me to participate in this, uh, this forum. I've, I'm very privileged and honored to be among the company of such illustrious speakers today. For the time of about 10 to 12 minutes allotted to me, I would like to do two things. One is I would like to comment on Sally James' paper, the US General System Preference, Helping the Poor, but at what price? And the other is I would like to put forward the suggestion regarding GSP reform. This suggestion or recommendation, whatever you have it, are result of our, our commission work um, done to improve upon the US GSP's, uh, GSP program uh, in light of this potential reform that's coming up every year at the end of the year. Um, and this paper will be available upon request uh, if you be interested in it. Regarding the work by Sally James, overall I find this paper to be comprehensive and thoughtful. I do admire the uh, intellectual on honesty of her work why I'm in agreement in many of her points. I also find to be in disagreement in some of her um, argument. Allow me to highlight on a few points of agreement first and then disagreement. Point of agreement. We agree that GSP confer benefit to both to exporter workers in manufacturing country as well as American manufacturer and consumer and worker alike. From our study, we found that GSP product from Thailand, ranging from processed food to automotive parts, from plastic tableware to kitchenware, find its way to major states such as Florida, California, Michigan, New York, Texas. This GSP import 
have become sources of competitively priced raw material and parts for American small and medium enterprise manufacturer and, and also as well as consumer. We also agree that list of illegal products should be expanded, as Ms. James write, and I quote, first and foremost significantly, the GSP exclude whole swath of products. Thailand also believes that the current list of eligible products should be expanded to include products for which there is no U.S. producer, and I would like to elaborate this point further in my uh, recommendation. Another point of agreement is on the work and criticism of competitive need limits, or CNL. The product is deemed to be competitive if exceed certain value threshold as it will lose its GSP benefit altogether. As Sally James succinctly put, competitive needs limit, or CNL, literally punished beneficiary for their exporting success. On this, we share, on this we share her criticism. Thailand has witnessed a product with itself in 2010 review, such as the car, passenger car tire, which only represented 4% of US import, lost its GSP benefit. Area of disagreement. In her paper, Sally James observed that the top most top user source of GSP import come from relatively fast growing and richer developing country. Thailand is cited as one of top user of GSP benefit. This point needs to be clarified. Despite its apparent success in export performance, I need to point out Thailand remains relatively a poor country with many challenges. According to the World Bank, Thailand is still a lower mid-income country with per capita income of less than 3,000 per year. The country still faces a problem of income disparity, poverty in many parts of the country. And it's just this economically disadvantaged population that need and rely on GSP benefit. For example, in case of civil jewelry, huge tribes in the northern province and the Muslim minority in the southern province stand to lose if GSP benefit is not renewed. Now, I would like to turn to my PowerPoint presentation briefly. There's, uh, there are about four pages of them. These are the recommendations that uh, upon GSP program, uh, as I pointed out earlier, it was a part of our commission work uh, in, um, on the GSP reform that uh, coming up. And I'd like to perhaps elaborate on this point, point by point. First, we believe that GSP program should be an independent program, as GSP is well understood by many odd stakeholders. Any attempt to integrate GSP with other preference program will even create confusion, and we will lessen the benefit of the program. Second, Thailand support and longer than one year renewal period. The business community rely upon commercial certainty. Any uncertainty we create will effect on them. Thus, Thailand requests that a renewal period of at least 10 years be, be most conducive to long-term investment and maximizing the benefit of GSP program. Third, we suggest that scheduling, schedule of GSP annual review 
should be aligned with the schedule that of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. That is to say that annual review decision should enter into effect on January 1st of each year instead of July 1st of, of each year. Fourth, we would like to suggest that country eligibility criteria to remain clear and objective. For example, we believe that the World Bank classification of low-income, low-middle-income, and upper-income country has served this purpose very well. In addition, Thailand government, Thai government support consideration of other factors, such as cooperation of U.S. goal and policy in areas such as global peace, security, and anti-terrorism, non-proliferation, and intelligence gathering as a contingent condition of GSP benefit. Fifth, the criteria of product eligibility should be expanded. Currently, close to 3,500 products are eligible for GSP benefit. We respectfully submit that a list of eligible products should be expanded. We believe that if three conditions prevail, such a product should be eligible for GSP status. Let's examine this condition briefly. Uh, a, if the product is, if there is no do, uh, domestic pro producer in the in U.S. B, if the major source of that product comes from GSP, beneficiary country or developed country. C, if the product of art and craft, labor-intensive, or produced by cottage industry. Six, we wish to ask for more flexible rule of origin. Currently, the 35% rule of value added value is the norm. We believe that tariff shift rule should be allowed, if so, chosen by the importers. Seven, we strongly urge that committee need limitation waiver criteria to be revised. As mandated by law, a product need to be sufficiently competitive if import from that country account more than 50% of U.S. import or reaching an arbitrary certain value threshold. In 2010, this equal $245 million. Thus, a certain product will lose its GSP privilege. We believe that setting such a value threshold to be problematic in two aspects. One is simply arbitrary. Two is does not account the factor that affect value of import, such as price of commodity, trade, and currency fluctuation, just to name a few. Instead, the Thai government propo uh, proposed that additional ad conditioning of market size should be attached to the value threshold. This means that if a product should be deemed competitive enough only if the value of that import reaches the threshold value and the value of that product exceeds 25% of the value of total import in a given year. Similarly, for those products under the super sale now uh, criteria, GSP benefit should be revoked only if the value of the product reaches 150% of the current year value threshold and its value constitutes more than 35% of the total import in a given year. Eight, the Thai government believes that there should be a clear criteria in redesignating GSP benefit once a product is graduated. It is our observation that in practice, no product has been reinstated GSP uh, privilege in many years. 
One suggestion may be that redesignation to be automatic once a product loses its GSP privilege due to CNL waiver is a product level of import far below CNL level for the, for the next three consecutive years. Night. We also support the idea of four-year phase-out period for product once it loses GSP preference. It is common that one loses the GSP status send a shock wave among exporter and importer alike. We believe that to cushion this shock and ease the situation, there should be a period of transition. We propose that a four-year would be ideal for a product that loses GSP benefit. And for this last point, I would like to conclude my presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Kamal Siri. Uh, now we uh, have time for your questions. Just a few very simple, uh, non-onerous uh, ground rules. Uh, wait for the microphone to come around. I'll, I'll uh, call on you. Wait for the microphone to come around. Uh, if you could give us your name and your affiliation, and then uh, keep the pre-orations to a minimum, uh, possibly, uh, if possible, and go straight to your question. And if it's to a specific member of the panel, go ahead and designate. Why don't I start with one? Dr. Kamal Suri, you, well, we'll come right back. You, you let us off pretty easy, and we, we like a good give and take uh, up here at, at Cato when you have these events. What, uh, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on where uh, you disagreed with the study and uh, where, where you thought uh, maybe our recommendations were somewhat different from yours. Well, again, as, a, as one of my disagreement with I pointed out earlier that uh, 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 Sally James cr cr uh, um, critique of that most of the country who are beneficiary of GSP program are already richer, relatively wealthier than 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 other country. Uh, the top user, I mean, I meant. True is maybe, but I think uh, if you look at country specifically, for example, the country of Thailand, Vietnam can speak of, uh, we are still relatively poor country. You know, the World Bank still classify as a lower mid income country with less than 3,000 per capita income per year. Uh, that alone uh, is a fact that perhaps, you know, uh, maybe Thailand could benefit a great deal from GSP program. But given economic condition, you know, with many challenges it's facing, we still, you know, I think we still rely upon GSP program. That's one of my part of the disagreement. Uh, another point perhaps I could uh, very well point out, Ed has tackled this problem, that uh, GSP itself could be a discriminatory nature. But I think, you know, given an ideal world in which country can compete on level playing field, would be correct. But in reality, that's not the case. You know, developing country still facing a lot of challenges. And I would like, I think GSP has become a, a platform in which a country can play on, a, on even more level, uh, on level playing field. So I think that that's perhaps could be, that's another my criticism that I, I think I have. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, the back there. Am I? Oh, there it is. Uh, Peter Gross, Fairfax, Virginia. Um, my question is that um, Bastiat in 1850 wrote the law, and in there he explained um, that in the hands of politicians, the um, and policymakers, tariffs and the ability to change them and create them and uh, pick like the GSP 
is promoting um, becomes, as he called it, legalized plunder. And my question, or what my my own thought on it is, is that if we just had a, of course, no tariff, but if you do have tariffs, just a flat across the board on every good, you know, totally going away from the GSP idea and anything, just straight, it seems obvious that it would, it seems like it would, shouldn't say use the word obvious, it would reduce the chances of politicians and policymakers being able to plunder these for their own. So I want to hear what you think. Tell your You're not expecting me to disagree with that, are you? Uh, look, clearly, clearly I agree, and that's what I was getting at when I talked about the, these programs being managed trade. But that's essentially what I'm saying. We see examples of programs like this, and I, and I want to make it quite clear. Ed, Ed's correct. A lot of my comments could equally, if not more so, apply to preferential trade agreements between countries of any level of development. So I want, I, I want to make it clear I'm acknowledging your, your point is technically correct. Certainly we see this uh, kind of opportunity for plunder, to use your or Bastiat's terminology, in the GSP program. Um, in, in, for example, you know, we were just talking in the, in the green room before about a congressman from... Uh, from Alabama. Uh, Alabama, thank you. Uh, supported by his senator, arguing that uh, that sleeping bags from Bangladesh should be exempt from the GSP um, because you know we, we need to support jobs and 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 Ed made a great point. You know if you can't compete with Bangladesh, that is not a good business model. But nevertheless, there are people in Congress, and this is just an example. I'm not picking on this on on these people um, unfairly, of, of congressmen using these renewals as, as fundraising opportunities. Clearly, I disagree with that. And that's why I'm, I'm making a point that what we need to think about is not what we... Oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. We always need to keep in mind the point Bastiat was making, and that's what I tried to make clear in my opening remarks, was that is the ultimate end goal. The point we then ask ourselves is... How do we move towards that? Is this, a, is this a, a better system than what we would have otherwise? If you think that without these programs we would have a flat tariff, well, not, a, not only just not free trade, but a flat tariff where, in other words, the, um, you know, the, the level of the... Uh, I've just had a senior moment. What's that called again? The effective level of protection? <coughs> effective rate of protection is zero. Thank you. Uh, you know... If, if that's what I thought we would have otherwise, then we'd have a point. We're dealing with politicians here and we need to, you know, keep in mind the end goal while dealing with reality. That's the way I look at it. And that's the approach I made with this paper. I want to make it clear this is not the ideal world I would, I would set up. It's basically what, what you mentioned before. Is that clear? Yeah. Uh, as in many other areas, the country of Chile set a good example. My understanding is they took what was a relatively protectionist trade regime uh, and instituted a flat rate tariff, which they've been progressively lowering uh, over the years. So you're, you're spot on. Yes, down here, right there. 
On the, okay, thank you. Uh, Aaron Rose, President and CEO of ROI3, uh, Seattle-based uh, technology company. Uh, I also uh, manage my own uh, investment fund. Um, it's the investment fund hat I'm going to wear in asking the question. Um, Sally, your graph show the trend lines, and certainly, I'm, and, and I would assume those are more like you know, the trade outputs. I'm curious on where you see the impact of the GSP on investments, particularly FDI, and even you know, in my world, what, what we call impact investing, where we're investing in, I'm investing in emerging, developing markets. Um, some are just the most uh, undeveloped uh, markets in the world. I'm curious to see that, and also, I have to admit, I'm very ignorant to policy. I don't live in the world of policy. I'm curious, maybe, uh, Mr. Grasser, your you pointed out on December 31, we're going to see an expiration. Uh, what will happen? Uh, what's your crystal ball going to show? How will that impact certainly trade, but also the investment, uh, either from you know FDI into these countries, uh, in that aspect, um, and then you know, sir, maybe from Thailand's perspective. Where do you see the impact? I mean, we, we talked about trade, we talked the impact on the flow of goods, but what is going to be the impact on actual flow of cash uh, coming in from venture capitalists and private equity holders? I'll take my part of the question first. Yeah, look, briefly, I guess it, 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 if these programs affect investment to the extent that if you are making a product, if a factory in, say, Thailand uh, is making a product that gets GSP preferences, you know, people might invest in that factory more than they otherwise would. Uh, and certainly, to, to the extent that you've got a choice of where to invest, you'd invest there rather than, rather than say, a, a competing firm uh, in the United States. But, you know, this happens... Uh, Forget the GSP just for a moment. This this has happened in autos, right? You can't you can't sell cars here under the tariff schedule, uh, under the tariff regime that America has for passenger cars. So you you know Toyota builds a plant here in the United States. So it, it will affect investment at, at the margin. This sort of money, I'm not sure that it's a that it's a huge factor. But um, my my co-panelists might have some more thoughts on on investment flows. Well, um, in most of the GSP goods, these are relatively labor-intensive. They're thought of as not import-sensitive. There are a few um, examples you could look at. A couple of years ago, um, the GSP privilege for gold jewelry was radically reduced. The effect of that was to move some or a large part of our importing from India and from Thailand into China. So it has some effect on the source of imports. It didn't have much of an effect on the market share of imports in the U.S. economy. And probably for the investor, you know, there's more investment in China and less in um, Chinese competitors. And I think that would be the major effect if GSP is, you know, you know as a whole not renewed. I, I would argue that uh, investment and GSP privilege reinforce each other. Uh, two examples can come to my mind. Uh, in the, the case of, for example, case of automotive parts. Uh, automotive parts is a product you receive GSP from from U.S. Uh, government. Uh, there's a lot of investment in Thailand going to, you know, in, into automotive parts such as Ford and GM and other Japanese manufacturer, car manufacturers. 
because the GSP benefit, uh, because GSP benefit, the, there were more investment in that particular sector. Another example would be car tire. You know, a tire, car tire used to be a GSP benefiting product. At the time, there was a lot of investment coming from Japan and, uh, and, and US companies as well in this sector. So I, I would say that they are reinforce each other. The more GSP benefit you have, the more conducive will be for the foreign investment to go to that particular sector. But uh, there, Laura. Hi. I'm Laura Boffman from the Coalition for GSP and the Trade Partnership. And oof, this is weird. Um, I'd like to put, put, pick up on Ed's last point about China and really emphasize it because this is something that the members of that I've had personal experience with. Um, one of the big benefits of GSP and of preference programs generally is that it enables it enables um, beneficiary countries to compete with China in the U.S. market. And absent the preferences, trade inevitably shifts to China. One of the um, things that I have noticed, sadly, in the nearly 20 years that the coalition for GSP has been in effect is that year by year by year, as the U.S. tariff rate declines, with uh, whether it's multilateral trade liberalization or most significantly the information technology agreement, and products that um, used to get benefits under GSP no longer get benefits, no longer need duty preferences because the preference, the duty rate is now zero, that trade moves out of uh, developing countries and into China. China so, is also a developing country. You mean beneficiary well, countries? Beneficiary countries, correct, yeah. Less competitive beneficiary, uh, beneficiary countries. So that's one of, the, um, one of the really important reasons, I think, to keep the preference programs going um, I take your other points, absolutely. Yes, there are certainly definitely problems with preference programs, and there are definitely benefits to U.S. companies and, and all. But one of the biggest benefits at all that, that, that I don't know if you, read, you pointed this out in your paper or not is that it keeps countries in the game vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, I did not mention that in, in my paper. I didn't deliberately not mention it, but he, here is where we come to the really the heart of the issue about this program, and this is where I might, uh, I suspect I will, part ways with my co-panelists. You know, it's, it's essentially a development program, and then you want to ask the question, is this the best way of providing development? In a sense, I guess, as somebody who is strongly committed to total free trade, the instinct is to say, so what? If China's the best person to get these goods, uh, person, if China's the best source for these imports, then that's the way it should be. And that's personally how, how I feel. And I think that then we look at, then we argue about development on its merits rather than using trade as a development tool. Again, that is in an ideal world. And the question then is, is does this program help? I, I take your point, but I, I'm a little less, um, I, I guess I'm less convinced uh, that this is the best way to offer development assistance to, to countries. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't, I'm, I'm just asking for the ideal. So in, in a sense, you know, we, we do a lot of work, not just me, but especially my colleagues, uh, Dan and, and our colleague Dan Eikens, do a lot of work on China and, and, and trying to 
I guess, bring down the debate over China and, and suggesting that it's something, a bogeyman, a trade bogeyman that we should avoid dealing with. There's certainly, I personally have problems with the regime, but uh, that, that's, that's something we try to keep separate. I don't know, Dan, if you want to add anything on, I, on the I, Chinese point. I, I, might, I, I might in a moment, but I wanted to know if Ed and Shakaran wanted to weigh on. Is that an argument, a legitimate argument for the program that it is diverting, let's use the word, diverting trade to non-China countries? Uh, I go back and forth in my own mind about that. Um, a couple of observations. One is that China is a very large importer. China is the largest market for Southeast Asia. China is a very big market, and I think a larger market for Africa than is the United States. And more basically, the GSP system is a help to countries trying to compete with China, and I think you can see this in the Thai jewelry case. But a country that relies on a preferential margin of 5% tariff for jewelry or even 15% tariff margin on clothes, ultimately that is not going to work uh, over time. China has a very sophisticated and very powerful supply chain that uh, is, enables China to deliver a huge variety of goods very quickly to the United States. And tariff margin is not a, powerful enough to overcome that. So if I thought that Thailand's only policy was to rely on GSP, I would be unhappy about that and nervous about it, because I don't think it would be a successful policy. Um, I do think GSP is one thing that adds some benefit to buying from Thailand, but Thailand also has to provide sort of interesting artistic twist or you know, glamorous Bangkok image to its products or get a very high, uh, uh, like a very high reputation for the quality of rice and, and processed foods. And in that case, GSP is one out of a number of things that, that keeps Thailand successful and helps keep the United States-Thailand relationship um, commercially strong. What is worried me, uh, and sort of in this way is pushing me toward uh, a bit more toward Sally's way of thinking over the past couple of years, is watching the African Growth and Opportunity Act, because uh, AGOA has created a very big um, margin for African countries, especially in clothing, and a little bit in agriculture, not as much. Uh, that has not been enough to make Africa competitive in clothing, but it has been enough to make the African countries a very powerful lobbying group against helping other poor countries through the tariff system. At a time when I think what is really the top, should be, the, I think should be the top priority for Africa is to take a very large windfall of cash from resource exports and use that to improve infrastructure and to use a Doha round to try to open up particularly the Indian market to African agricultural products. And there I think you see some of the potential problems that Sally's pointed to in this paper at, at, a, at a very high level. I don't personally think the GSP system has has done that. And so I, I think up to now it's been well used. And countries like Thailand and like Brazil, big beneficiaries, are also pretty you know, good, you know, constructive players in the Doha round. So I, I have less concern about it. But the AGO experience has, to some extent, sobered me a bit. Well, <clears throat> I, I can't really comment on my uh, my. My not neighbor on much on, on that on China very much. I I think 
uh, I think both of the speakers have already uh, speak on that issue well enough. But for me, I think uh, GSP has been a important catalyst for GSP for Thai economic development. I, I think we have grown up from a, as at the point out, uh, economic a recipient to a very robust exporter for the, for the past 20, 20 years. That GSP has a lot to do with it. But more importantly, I think uh, you know you cannot just look at GSP as simply economic instrument, but it become a very important political instrument as well. I mean, it has been a glue that cement the, the, the bilateral relationship between Thai and U.S. 177 years of uh, you know, friendship and you know uh, and, uh, and bilateral relation. I mean, GSP has done that. I mean, the Thai uh, people think very fondly of U.S. when you know when you know when newspaper published that we our product has been receiving GSP for the next year or so. I mean that that kind of a, you know a, that, that kind of a, a non-economic uh, uh, benefit it also helped uh, to show that GSP is so important to to the bilateral between Thai and, and U.S. Just a couple of thoughts on this whole issue of the GSP diverting trade away from China to, to other countries. I just I think that's a political selling point, no question about it. Just putting an economist hat on for a minute, isn't it classic trade diversion uh, in that the GSP program means we're not getting a lower price, but we're giving up the tariff revenue? Uh, whether government collects less revenue or not is a, a matter of opinion whether that's a benefit. But the other, the other thing is putting a humanitarian hat on. I'm not sure why we should care more about uh, lifting a poor person out of poverty in Thailand or Angola uh, more so than lifting somebody out of poverty in China. Anyway. Add one. Go ahead. Um, a couple of thoughts on that. One is the GSP is not lifting any poor people out of poverty in Angola. Uh, GSP is waiving a specific duty or flat fee of about 10 cents per barrel of oil on uh, Angolan oil. That's all it does for Angola. So that that's really just an accounting issue. Um, so one of the things that I've really uh, wanted to see in the preference program is to try to take the energy out of the program, either by just taking it out or by scrapping these fees. So it wouldn't look like the programs are so big. Um, the AGOA program, again, is a big example. There's you know, $20 billion of oil and $1 billion of manufactured goods in it. And so we, you tend to overrate the scale of them because of that. Um, the other point is, as a humanitarian matter, you know, there's no reason to worry more about poverty in Central America than about poverty in China, certainly. On the other hand, I think the United States as a country has a lot of real reasons to worry about poverty and economic instability in Central America, because it can create political problems that affect us, and because the Chinese government has many more resources to deal with poverty on its own than some of the, the smaller governments that are preference beneficiaries. So I think there is a, I think there's more of a choice there than maybe, than you're seeing in it. It's a difference of perspective, I guess. I'll let you have the last word. Uh, yes, right there. Uh, Maria Kosmi, I am an agri and trade consultant. Uh, could you just explain on which ground China is not part uh, of the GSP uh, program? And a second question. Um, I think on your chart, you said that from 2002, the program was um, voted for uh, five years. Uh, and then it seemed that 
the system reverted to uh, one-year-long uh, programs. Can you explain what happened? Thank you. Uh, on the first comment, correct if I'm, if I'm wrong, China is excluded because it is a communist country. Is that, is that correct? Basically, any so Vietnam is excluded on the same basis. Uh, Cuba, well, they're just over-determined that they were going to be excluded, unfortunately, from our point of view at Cato. Um, so that's the answer to your first question. Uh, second question, what happened? Uh, that is a good... I actually don't... Wh why did they go from five-year extensions in 2002? Laura, or, Laura, do you know the answer to that? Could you give the microphone yeah. to Laura, please? Compl complicated, the pay-go... Uh, oh, that's right. It was, yes, that's right. These... Oh, I don't think I want to go here, but these tariff <laughs> concessions to use have to be paid for in the budget. Th thank you, Laura. That's right. Have to, have to pay for those tax cuts yeah. for the poor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I don't know. Uh, we have time for uh, one more question. How about there and back? Hi, I'm uh, Jan Wooten. I work with the American Task Force Argentina. We're currently in the process of submitting petitions to um, ask for the revocation of Argentina's GSP status. And I was very interested in hearing um, Dr. Komisari's uh, comments uh, on the need for fair and objective criteria for evaluating who is in the club and who is not in the club. And I understand that there is a, a ceiling on the number of nations which can participate. And, and it seems to be no clear objective criteria for their graduation or for you know, uh, taking a look at um, uh, when, when it's time for them to be removed from the program. Um, and I, in the case of Argentina, this is a, this is a situation where Argentina has violated numerous contracts with American businesses working there and has also um, reciprocated its, uh, its GSP uh, status by hiking tariffs on U.S. goods imported into Argentina. So how, how do you think about that, that the sort of fairness question that, that um, Dr. Commissary raised? Is, is that question addressed to me? Uh, Sally, I'd love to hear from you and, and from others. Yes, uh, thank you. Yeah, again, this becomes a question out of trade policy and more international diplomacy. How do you deal with a country that does something egregiously, egregiously bad? And this is uh, one of the reasons for the Cuban embargo is that, you know, they took American people's property without compensation. And as I understand it, that's the same case as, as with Argentina as well. Um, I think that's a fair point. The question, though, is how do you best address that problem? I'm not convinced that trade policy has worked definitely in the Cuban case. That seems a no-brainer to me. Uh, again, what criteria do you use? And this is, this is where I start to worry about inserting politics into these programs rather than leaving it to me as a consumer to decide from whom living where I want to buy that good, which I happen to consider an individual right, uh, then you, you get politicians involved. Who decides what the criteria are? And this is where the politics start. What is fair? My definition from fair might be um, different from Chikaran's. It might be, it's certainly going to be different from most people in Congress, I can assure you that. Uh, 
and that then becomes a discussion of, of, of politics and international relations rather than trade policy. I'm not saying they're not relevant. I'm saying you approach it with a different set of, of tools. As an economist, I, I think those questions are irrelevant to my profession as a, somebody who cares about poor people and definitely cares about justice and, and property rights. It's of great concern to me, but I might bring a diff different set of tools to that dis to that dis decision. Sorry if that's not a very precise answer. But. Gentlemen? Yes, in my perspective, I don't know the Argentine case, so I won't comment on that, but I have two observations. One is that the preference programs in general are, in my opinion, over-conditioned. Uh, there depending on how you count them, there's as many as 25 things that a beneficiary has to do or ought to do to qualify. A few of them are clear and straightforward. One is the um, per capita income. One is the lack of support for terrorism. One is not being a communist country. And those are things you can answer yes or no. The others are all countries should be making you know, substantial progress toward this and doing their best to that and in general shouldn't do something else. And it becomes very, very difficult, I think, for the U.S. government to make any judgment on when is a country a bad enough actor to be expelled and when is a country doing enough. So I would much rather have fewer conditions and clearer ones than many conditions and blurry ones like we have now. Second point is that uh, you know, it is the case that the program will wink out for everyone in two weeks. And if it's not uh, renewed, then all these discussions become kind of academic because everyone will lose their, their benefits. So the first thing you should do is try to renew it and then think about how to make it better. <laughs> I just, uh, just, just have a one, one quick comment on that. I, after all, a GSP program is a unilateral program. Uh, as enshrined by the, um, uh, the enabling clause of the United Nations. Uh, having said that, you know, U.S. government can, can decide who the, the criteria, criteria uh, what, what is deemed to be appropriate for its own program. But, but having said that, I, I believe that uh, the, criteria, the country eligibility criteria should be clear objective. And again, Thailand support the current, uh, uh, the current uh, uh, criteria using per capita, uh, per capita income as outlined by the World Bank as a criteria. And I think that's, that's example is very fair, and, and I think we, we can support that, that uh, criteria. 